Tena koto, tena koto, tena koto katoa. So, Maori greeting. Welcome, Paul, to our whanau, our family, graduate family. And we've got a guest who will introduce himself in a minute uh, from Hamburg University. Uh, so, uh, welcome to our creative pedagogy class, uh, Paul. Um, I don't know if I told you this, but we're hoping to uh, make a podcast out of this. Uh, and uh, so we may end up uh, having it online sometime. Oh, okay, that's no problem. Great. You okay with that? Okay, good. Well, I've got your permission now. I can now we can do anything. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you told me now. I'm going to keep it under control. <laughs> well, I always said because I didn't want to scare you, bro. Uh, anyway, welcome to our creative pedagogy class. Kiora Tenakoto 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 Kiora. Uh, from uh, University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Uh, today we are fortunate to have Paul Wright here uh, to present uh, on work that he's been involved in for a number of years on TPSR and social and emotional learning from Northern Illinois University near Chicago. Uh, and so my first question for you, Paul, is what's the weather like where you are? Well, I'm gonna get first. I'm gonna give you a hint. Here's a cup of tea, a nice hot cup of tea, <laughs> is helping me to survive this. Give me just a second. Oh my gosh! That's that's Ooh. my best. Oh. 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 We uh, we had snow Where's that it? seemed to just last forever for a few weeks. Uh, and then it all melted last week, but then we got a fresh dose again today. So we had about two days with no snow on the ground. <laughs> huh. so okay, like buddy. Chicago. Well, we, you'll be looking forward to uh, coming to Greensboro uh, end of March. And uh, yes, I am. Some other time, but, uh, and you know, you're welcome. And uh, we'll look forward to that. And hopefully it will be a bit warmer. Here it's about 60-ish degrees. Uh, Fahrenheit, and we've got, uh, but it's cooling off tomorrow. So, uh -huh. uh, skies in Greensboro. So, uh, just a little introduction. I met Paul, just so you all know. Um, I think back in about 2011, and uh, if I'm right, uh, and uh, he was applying for a job at the University of Memphis. I was there, and very fortunately, we were smart enough to hire Paul uh, after he met his wife, his better half, Amanda. Uh, mm -hmm. She, you know, she really sealed the deal. Um, um, and of course, uh, Paul has uh, visited me in Auckland, New Zealand for ISEP and stayed at my house. And then I've been fortunate to stay with him in uh, Chicago. Uh, and it's been a pleasure to have known him for a number of years now. He was a discipline of, uh, or a disciple, I should say. Uh, he's in the discipline with uh, Don Hallison and is very knowledgeable about research on social-emotional learning and teaching personal and social responsibility. So thanks for taking the time, Paul, uh, for being here. And now I'm just going to ask folks here to introduce themselves, and then we'll get back to you. Is that okay, mate? Sounds good. Sounds great. Uh, sorry. Hey, I know you. How are you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't need any introduction. But um, Sorry, yeah, Donald is my name again, Paul. We met briefly, uh, Donald Howley. We met briefly. Oh, yeah. I remember. Good to see you. I said in New York, yeah. And I'm obviously a graduate assistant or a graduate student working under Ben. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm originally from Ireland, where I was a PE teacher. Uh, and I graduated out of the University of Limerick. Uh, so, yeah, uh, looking, look, good to see you again. Yeah, same here. 
Right, we're going to have to change the terminology, working with Ben, I think. <laughs> All right. Hi, um, I'm Judy Fowler. I am in the PhD program through the School of Education, but I do have a background in elementary physical education. And my work, um, I guess I could joke and say my day job is with teacher preparation. Okay, all right, good. Nice to meet you, Judy. Okay, uh, hello, uh, my name is uh, Shen. People call me Eddie here. Uh, so I'm a second year PhD student and uh, no, working with Dr. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I'm from China, and I was a uh, university PE teacher. Yeah, nice. Okay. Good, but I think we skipped someone. Who's at the head of the table? Ah, she's my daughter. Ni hao. Ni hao. She must be the most important person in the room because she's at the head of the table. Thank you. She is, indeed. Chairman. Hey, Paul, I'm Klaus. I'm not really sure if we, have we met last year in Toronto? So no, I wasn't in Toronto. You weren't there. Okay, no, then no. we haven't met yet. I'm, I'm here by accident because um, I'm um, a professor in Hamburg, Germany, mm -hmm. and a professor for physical education and doing lots of research on the student's perspective on physical education. But now I'm here as vice dean of our faculty of our School of Education in Hamburg. And we're here on an exchange with the university in Chapel Hill. Oh, okay. And, and because I've known Ben for quite a while now and we have a research collaboration, we're trying to establish a small student or PhD exchange as well. So today I'm here for other reasons, but I'm really, really happy to be able to join your class here and I have the great pleasure to meet uh, Ben's family after that. And it's great meeting you, of course. And okay, Ben's, good. Are we coming to San Francisco? Um, no, I won't be in San Francisco okay. either. So this is our, <laughs> I'm sure we'll cross paths in person someday, One day. But, uh, One day. Danke und willkommen. Danke auch. <laughs> Uh, hello, I'm Sinyam Beck, and I'm a first-year doctor of students, and I'm also working with Dr. Ben Dyson, and I did my master's in Seoul National University uh, under Dr. Oksali's guidance, so I think oh. I met you before when you visited Seoul, so... Yes, yeah. yes, Anyang, Anyang has help. Right, Anyang Nice to see you again. Yes, yes, very good to see you. Okay. Hi, I'm Jennifer Lingle. I am also in the PhD program in the School of Ed under Teacher Education and Development. I'm sort of the odd man out. My background is not in physical education, but is in middle grades mathematics. I was a public school teacher for 20 years and then decided to come back. Um, Judy is my critical doc friend. We are in the program together um, in the School of Ed and um, Ben has been kind enough to let me sit in on this course um, from outside the kinesiology department because of my uh, love and interest in creative pedagogy. Okay, great. Well, nice to have you. Thanks, I'm glad to be here. Good, and, and the things we'll talk about today regarding social emotional learning are, you know, I'll, I'll use a lot of sport and physical education examples, but it really should apply just as well in any subject matter. Agreed, agreed. So thanks for letting me sit at the table. I appreciate it. It's great to have you here, Jennifer. Paul, uh, do you want to start off with something or? Yeah, I, th I thought um, 
you know, I, I hope that the majority of our time is uh, just open discussion, but um, I think you were given a couple readings of articles that I've, I've had a hand in over the last few years. And I thought maybe I'd just sort of make some, you know, we can get into the details of TPSR, SEL, or those articles as, as the conversation flows, but I thought I would just sort of make some opening comments, uh, but just to give you a sense of sort of my big picture take on this topic and, and how I've come into it. Uh, but just a, a couple minutes on that, and then we can just start flowing with questions, if that sounds good to you. Perfect. So as, as Ben said, you know, my uh, beginning with this work was with the TPSR model, the Teaching Personal and Social Responsibility model. Um, and I'm assuming some of you are familiar with, but maybe not everybody. Um, it's essentially, it, it, my mentor, Don Hellison, had started back in the 70s, work, he was working with sport and physical education, but uh, doing what at the time he called a more humanistic approach. Uh, he was really much more interested in helping students to develop as people, developing positive values and um, attitudes and behaviors that could help them to be their best selves and, and uh, perhaps more successful interacting with other folks too. Most of that work that he did was with inner city, underserved youth, um, often labeled at risk. Uh, that's where he, he really most wanted to reach kids that were in marginalized communities and often had more struggles in terms of self-control, behavior management, things like that because of the, the, the communities they were growing up in. So that was always his passion, and he, over a, you know, 40 years uh, plus, developed this teaching approach that really hinged on the idea of using sport and physical education as a vehicle to teach life skills, um, with the main focus being helping kids learn these skills, things like leadership, goal setting, self-control. How can you practice those things? in sport and physical activity, which is a great setting, you know, because it's so authentic and interactive and emotionally charged. It's a great setting to introduce those skills and have kids develop and practice them. But his ultimate goal was always that they would learn them well enough that they could transfer those ideas and skills and use them in other parts of their life. Uh, so that's the TPSR model in a nutshell. Uh, as I said, it's interesting when he started doing that work, there was nobody in physical education that was really interested in working with underserved or at-risk youth. Uh, nobody was talking about the affective domain as a primary focus. Uh, he was really a champion for that and, and well ahead of his time. Uh, by the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a big push on uh, what's called positive youth development, which is more commonly you, you, you hear that tag more often used in after-school settings, uh, out-of-school environments, uh, but it really resonated. Finally, maybe more so than the traditional PE pedagogy, he, he started finding a home for what he was doing in that positive youth development world. Um, and that's, that's been the case for quite a while. But it's interesting now as we see social and emotional learning emerging as such a big priority in the field of education writ large um, and, and uh, physical education uh, is following along uh, in, the, in that wave. It's just so interesting how things have come full circle. 
because now the work that Don was doing uh, essentially on his own time and YMCA's and alternative schools, uh, developing this approach to teaching life skills through physical activity. This is now one of the, the, the biggest uh, buzzwords and, uh, you know, bandwagon sort of initiatives in education these days. Uh, and, and I certainly see that happening in physical education. So, so that, that is my orientation to this. This is a really interesting point in time. I have a lot easier go than my mentor did um, doing this work. Um, I'm, I'm essentially able to capitalize on the great uh, strategies and concepts that he had developed over all these decades and trying to share these a little more broadly now and help people see that this, among many other wonderful approaches in PE, um, it can really be and should be viewed as best practices for promoting social and emotional learning. Um, so that that's sort of an opening uh, uh, commentary about my history. A couple things I just want to say, a big thing that I push in my view of social emotional learning, whether you're using the TPSR model or adventure-based learning or cooperative learning, I really encourage teachers to shake free of some of the old opinions we've had about teaching to the affective domain or teaching personal and social skills. Uh, in practice, for a long time, teachers have, have treated those things as, as optional. Uh, you, you know, you get to that if you have to or if you have time, but they're secondary. Um, so I really push people to think of this as part of the curriculum. It's part of the content. Um, which is easy to say in physical education. We have five national content standards, and two of them are devoted to affective learning goals. So this isn't something we do instead of PE or in addition to PE. It is part of it. Um, I, I just recently was having a conversation with, with another common friend I have with Ben, uh, Kevin Richards, and we were talking about Mike Metzler, somebody I, I really respect, and I think he's done great work but we were talking about, even in one of his landmark books, he talks about um, management as separate from instruction. So setting expectations, dealing with behavior, things like that were seen as separate from instruction. And I really, I, I think we, that's something else we need to push back on. To me, when you're setting explicit expectations for behavior, when you're giving feedback and direction, when you're taking time to do grouping, you know, like for Ben doing cooperative learning, you have to do heterogeneous grouping, right? Yep. Taking the time to manage and facilitate and create structures that are going to let kids work on and develop social emotional skills. That's not, not something you do instead of teaching PE or as a means to an end. Those things are, are critically important. They're part of teaching and promoting these skills. Um, and then another sort of soapbox topic, I think one of the last ones I'll put out there, is, is I do encourage PE teachers to think of these as skills. Uh, one of the problems with addressing the affective domain and things like this for a long time is uh, they're seen as so subjective and ill-defined that that gives people a pass. They can say, well, you know, I, sure, I teach values and character, but you can't measure that stuff. You can't teach that stuff. Um, but I call BS on that. You, you absolutely can. Uh, so if you, if you want to teach it, you, just like you would teach any psychomotor skill, you set a clear objective, 
you make that clear and explicit to the kids what, what it is and why that's important in the lesson. You give them essentially critical elements. You tell them what this looks like. If I'm going to have you guys working together in a group and I want to see cooperation, here are the key markers for what cooperation looks like in this activity. So I make it explicit. I make it clear. I give them a chance to practice it. And just like I would if I was teaching the bounce pass, I give them feedback on how they're doing with it. As, as, they're, as they're engaging in this group work or, or practicing with a partner, I give feedback on what they're doing well and maybe what they need to work on. Now, if I've presented it as an objective, I've given clear criteria for what it looks like, I let them practice it, and I've given feedback along the way, well, I can absolutely assess that and say something about how the kids are doing and what they need to work on in terms of cooperation or goal setting or leadership opportunities or whatever it is. So I think uh, looking at it as part of our content is really crucial. Looking at it as something we can absolutely teach and assess is also an important mindset. Um, and then I think, you know, you had a chance to see a couple of the articles I've written. So you've gotten some impression of, you know, the, the ways I've tried to uh, support this in practice and, and evaluate what's going on in practice out there. But uh, I think that's probably enough, hopefully, to, to springboard us into some questions and conversation. If you've got some thoughts you want to put out there. Well, I mean, I have an initial one for just to get the ball rolling. So in your experience, uh, you know, you've practiced this and worked with many teachers in many different countries. What do you think is the biggest uh, barrier or what are some of the biggest barriers they find? Because it's really, I think, it's not business as usual. It's really, I, I would call it almost a philosophical or conceptual shift. Mm -hmm. uh, what we've been doing historically in physical education where we might have been focusing on, you know, particularly in the US, we focus on the mantras, physical activity. If the kids are physically active, we're really happy. Or sport, uh, as they're, you know, is often focused on in New Zealand. So, yeah, yeah. And then that'll give everyone time to think of their questions. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, was, so, yeah, one, one of those things, like you just spelled out, is um, when, and we traditionally have had this focus on the psychomotor domain, physical skill development, sport, you know, and, and uh, MVPA, you know, in, in, in the sort of the wake of this uh, increase in obesity and physical inactivity, that has really solidified in the mindset of so many PE teachers, this, this assumption that their job is to have kids moving and to be teaching kids physical skills and that that equals PE. So that, that's where you get the foothold for this idea that, well, I don't have time to do group processing because it's cutting into activity time. So, so what's, what's happening there, I think, at the assumption level is they're seeing this as optional or it's something they do instead of or in addition to PE. And that's why I really push on that reminder that, no, this, isn't, this is part of it. Um, you're not taking a break from PE. Yes, you might be taking a break from physical activity for a minute, but that's okay. You know, that, that's only one of the five standards. We've got two. Um, so I really try to push on that for them to realize this is part of uh, what they should be teaching if they're addressing the standards. Um, and another, the easiest sort of um, excuse, I think, out there after if, if um, 
they don't get very far with, I don't have time to do this, is to say, well, we're doing this already. Um, and, and a lot of teachers, very well-intentioned, they really do think, well, yeah, I'm a good person. I believe in, you know, being respectful and all this. Of course, that's sort of, you know, it's being picked up by osmosis. I do this. You know, if kids are out of line, I address it. I'm good with behavior management. Here's my problem with all that. Um, that's setting a pretty low bar. If the only time we address student behavior is, is being reactive to problems, then again, we're not teaching this as content. We're not looking at this as a skill. With any other skill, our goal is to have every kid develop as well as they can. You know, from whatever their starting point is, we want them to attain the highest level they're able to with that skill. Um, so I think we just need to adopt that same mindset and not say it, it's, it's not to sort of catch as can or address problems when they come up. Um, I've had teachers say to me, oh, I don't need to do TPSR. My kids are good. <laughs> to which I say, hey, that's, that's great that you don't have problems with disrespectful behavior or interruptions. That means you've got a great foundation to start teaching them some pro-social skills. That means you've got a great foundation to work on cooperation and leadership skills and having higher level conversations about respect. Why is it important here? How is that important in other parts of life? So there, there are all the, there's no limit to how high we can go with this content and these skills, but we have to see them that way. So those are some of the immediate obstacles, thinking that we don't have time for this or thinking that we already do this. Um, or that we only have to do it with kids that are having problems. So one of the themes that's happened for me in this class, right, is that... You've been bored. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so bored right now. Is that, um, yeah. that I, I am, um, each week I am um, continuously wowed at the fact that we are all talking about the same thing. So everything that you just said and, and Ben that you're trying to get at, time, I already do it, I don't need to do it, my kids are good. I can't, I can't stop doing math and do a group check-in. I can't, I can't stop doing what I'm doing. Of course and, you can. Well, of course you I can. time. Right, sure. But you, so I am continually fascinated because I really deeply, deeply wanted to believe that there was something magical happening in the encore world, right? I'm a middle school teacher. So in the encore world, the world of PE, the world of art, the world of music, the world that, that you all had a magic that was saving you from all of these same issues that we were having in the, in the core content world. And so I, I say that because one of the other things I really wanna do is blur those lines. I talk about this all the time, that if I, if I do anything, right, I want us to be able to talk about all of these subjects that happen in middle schools as, as not being either or, it's, right? It's not core or right. encore, it's a subject that they are engaged in. So I, I hear math teachers and science teachers say all the same things. I don't need to stop and think about personal and social, you know, responsibility because I have a great, I have a group of great kids. Yeah. They listen to everything I say. <clears throat> I'm modeling this behavior. And so we still have to keep pushing through to figure out 
well, no, okay, but now what? <laughs> and how yeah, do we keep yeah. moving? Um, so I, I am continuously wowed and, and awed at the fact that it, it's, it's happening in PE. Um, having not been a PE person, I do have one clarifying really question <laughs> and you can just say, gosh, Jennifer, you're not a PE person. So T TPSR was born in the PE world? Or yes, yes. In, so it comes um, from him in the PE world. Yeah, so so Don Hellison developed it working with physical education. He he okay. did a, much of his work in alternative schools sure. and working with kids that were higher needs. But yeah, it, its origins were absolutely in physical education. And um, has and, it crossed oh, over? Has it crossed over into the other worlds? It it has to some extent, and that's one of the things I'm working on in my career. Um, there are uh, some groups in Spain that I've worked with that have uh, applied this uh, school across the curriculum uh, because it is essentially an approach to teaching social and emotional learning. Absolutely. Now our specific tactics have been developed around um, using sport uh, activity, but those are just tactics. Um, the, the larger strategies of giving kids choices and voices, giving kids leadership roles, yep. setting clear expectations, that's not tied to content no. um, at all. And actually, Jennifer, I want you to know, I, I tend to use math examples quite a bit when I'm trying to get people to see this point. Right. So like, for example, I'll, I'll say, you know, what other subject area, you know, I'll use math as an example. Could a teacher just say, ah, yeah, that's part of the curriculum, but I, I'm, I'm just not going to do that. We're not going to cover geometry. <laughs> or we're going to cover it. About but... statistics. They won't say that about geometry. <laughs> yeah. Or we're going to cover it, but we're not going to assess it. Because I think, you know, the kids get it. I mean, they're showing up, they're hanging out. I see how they're doing. I mean, the, the, the things that are common practice in PE are absolutely laughable when you make the contrast to an, to another subject area. Um, and, and just as far as this tactics crossing over idea, like I would say, I'll, I'll use an example, like, you know, if you're teaching the Pythagorean theorem, I love geometry was the, my favorite part of math. Um, you're teaching the Pythagorean theorem with any content, any subject area, there are a few kids that are absolutely lost, right? They have no idea. There are a few kids who are bored out of their mind because they got it the first time you walk through the example. And then a lot of kids are stuck in the middle. Um, but it, there's, if you were to select kids, you know, what we would do in the gym with basketball or what we could do is say, let people decide where they're at with this skill. Are you in the group that needs a little bit of help? Are you in the group that's like really bored out of your mind and you could be helping someone else? Or do you, are you in the mode where you really just think some more practices do? I mean, why couldn't you have people working at their own skill level and having opportunities for asking help and giving help all happening in a math classroom working on Pythagoras? Um, there's no reason. Um, yeah, so, so anyway, I, I, I love your, your perspective there, and I agree entirely. If we focus on the tactics and the... the um, uh, the activities, it can be a bit of a distraction, but if you really look at the bigger picture and the strategies and the pedagogy behind it, it's absolutely transferable. Right, and Paul, you know, that, that's what the focus of this class is. It is not curriculum, it is not content. So your uh, focus and uh, perception to see that it can 
be uh, it's it's content free, you know, yeah. and you know that's really what we're talking about here. And uh, so uh, I appreciate you reading the script. Yeah, that's <laughs> I'm in the right place. <laughs> so I have a piggyback question, and then I'll stop asking and let someone else. Um, you said a moment ago. Um, about it, I think you said it was a school in Spain that was implementing uh, yeah. it school wide. Did I hear you say that? Uh, you know, I might have used the term school wide. Let me let me be a little more precise. What we worked with was doing it across the curriculum. So we had some math teachers, some language, some music, and PE. So we had several different teachers um, it, who who volunteered and wanted to learn about this model and play around with how to adapt it and apply it in the classrooms did so. It wasn't necessarily all across the school, sure. but it did cross the curriculum and it allowed us to, um, to play around with this idea of saying, okay, we're working with a language teacher or a music teacher. What are the opportunities in their setting with their content right. to apply these principles? And that really spoke to me around the transfer piece, right? That mm -hmm. in one of the articles, even it was the woman PE teacher who had scored so high, um, but still transfer was still the lowest one. Right. And so yeah. it, it, my question really was around whether or not it had been looked at across a building because mm -hmm. then we're not operating in silos and we're asking kids to demonstrate these, um, these skills that we're asking them to practice and, you know, get feedback on in places, um, outside of just, the one space, right? It's right. not just the PE teacher's um, responsibility to teach me about leadership, right? Sports right. are a great avenue for that, but so is cooperative learning, right? And so, I hope so. Right, yes. So I, I wondered if there, and if it had been published and if it was out in the world yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, th there's something uh, th that is published that is out there. Um, but, it, but we've had several people sort of in practice that have played around with doing it in different subject areas. We don't have as much written about all of those examples yet. Um, but I, I do think what you're saying, you know, one of the, the advantages to having a set approach, you know, TPSR is the one I happen to use, but obviously it's not, it's not the only one. And I'm not saying it's the best one, but I do think it's a pretty good example. Um, what I think benefits teachers is having a, a common language and a common framework that they can be using it for, for consistency within the way they approach their own classes. But then if across classes, we're using similar vocabulary, um, so I think, you know, a lot of the, the uh, social emotional learning approaches that are being disseminated these days, some, a lot of the evidence-based practices, that's one of the advantages that I see with those is they allow us to, um, you know, to, to, to send more consistent messages uh, that align and, and are reinforcing each other. Because what I think a lot of teachers gut reaction in my own research and just life experience, you know, the, I, I rarely meet a teacher that, that has, uh, is opposed to the idea of respect or leadership or making good choices. You know, they're all on board and they all say, oh yeah, yeah, I really believe in that. I really push for that. But then they're really hard pressed to say, well, when and how do you teach that? What activities do you plan and deliver to teach kids about making good choices? When do you say those words? Um, I think that's where we tend to fall short, really, is, is being intentional and explicit in the way we handle these. 
And if you do get a teacher that does that, it's a rare bird and it's probably the only one in the school or at least in that wing. Um, if, if we made that the norm and we had a lot of teachers taking a similar approach, sending similar messages, I, I think it could only help. Great, thanks. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Mike. Uh, good answer and uh, Jennifer, great questions. Anybody else? Yeah, I have a question about TPSL model. And I'm actually taking a course uh, called Evidence-Based Physical Activity Program Evaluation. And mm -hmm. I'm working on Youth Leader Corps, YLC. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I was doing my assignment, I came across a big question. So as far as I understand, the ultimate level of responsibility in TPSL model is transferring res uh, responsibility outside the gym. Mm -hmm. but I'm wondering what are the effective ways to persuade people to see that it is actually working because I understand that interviews can be one of the effective ways, but actually it is really based on children's memory and experience. So when I, you know, when I have to show real evidence to people outside education, so what do you think about the effective ways about the evidence of TPSL model? Okay, so um, there are actually, we're, we're developing, I think, all the time, a better bank of uh, instruments, you know, research instruments and methods to do this. Um, I think some of the readings that I shared that, that you might have seen use this, uh, the tear instrument, right? One of the reasons I developed that was, uh, let me sort of hit three different levels here. You know, Don Hellison did the amazing work as a thinker and a teacher and a, and a, a, a scholar in, in, in so many ways, but he was not a traditional researcher. And, and he, he, he actually took a lot of uh, abuse as he would call it, for years and years, for not having enough theory, not having enough data, not taking a traditional approach to, to science. So when I started doing this work, you know, for, for 30 or more years, he had really established a great set of practices. But in terms of doing uh, more traditional technical approaches to research, it, it was the beginning stages. So part of the, the my logic I've been working at this for several years was if if we are saying that the content our focus is to teach personal and social responsibility that would be a good place to start to have an instrument that would assess personal and social responsibility so uh, back in the days when I was in Memphis with Ben uh, Wei Dung Lee and I worked together and developed an instrument called the PSRQ the personal and social responsibility questionnaire um, it's just a very simple, straightforward questionnaire, but it was one of the first tools we had where we could assess kids' um, self-reported behaviors in, in, in our setting. And I was intentional about not focusing on transfer at that point, because I thought that's a whole other thing. Let's first just come up with a tool to assess our core learning content. Um, but then I, I realized also that self-report is just one thing, uh, and, and any data set is limited having observation to complement that is really important. So that's when I developed the tear and I was really focused on the teacher. What are they implementing? 
because this is where we get into the black box of research. You know, if somebody says, well, I implemented TPSR and it didn't work. Well, that may be the case, but I'd really like to know before we jump to <laughs> throwing TPSR away, exactly what were you doing? What are you, what are you calling TPSR? So that idea of looking at implementation and implementation fidelity was really what was driving me to create those observational tools, which again, each one, uh, the, the, they all can serve a function, but no one tool can do everything. And then the most recent thing that I've developed is, um, it was just published in JTPE in December. Uh, it's called the Torque, uh, the, the tool for, uh, wait, what is it called? Oh, no, the Transfer of Responsibility Questionnaire, the Torque. Um, so that was just published in, in December. Mm -hmm. And that finally looks at this idea of transfer, which has been something really tricky for us for a long time to deal with. Um, and essentially, what, what, the way I came down to it, I, and if, you, if you're really interested, I'd suggest you read that article. And another one in Quest from 2017, Jacobs and Wright. That, that one, we, we sort of develop our model or present a model for how we think about transfer. One of the big problems I see is that when people talk transfer, they always want to shoot to behavioral outcomes. Well, are the kids getting fewer detentions? Are they getting fewer referrals? Are their grades going up? Um, one of the problems with that is that assumes that there's a single variable that reflects what all the different kids needed. You know, for every, every group I teach, the, for every one kid that needs to uh, learn how to control his mouth and his temper because he's overly <laughs> aggressive in your face, there's another kid that's really shy that what they don't have any problems with aggression or, or being out of control. They have the need to develop their self-confidence and maybe take on leadership roles. So what happens, you know, when, when we only focus on one variable, it, it washes out. You're never going to get a good result, in my opinion, because every kid should have an individualized area for growth and opportunity. So our approach to transfer that we're taking lately is to focus on the, the, the cognitive and affective processes as well as behaviors. So to me, part of transfer is kids deciding that, oh, I, I, I actually see why respect and responsibility is important. It's expanding their perception and they can see how that's relevant in other parts of life. Um, and, and they start to change their values about it. And they do think it's something worth adopting and using in other places. Um, now of course, we're interested if they report applying it and using these ideas somewhere else, but I'm not going to assume what that translates into. You know, it, again, outcomes like increased attendance or decreased, uh, you know, disciplinary referrals. Um, that's where I think if we complement some of these survey instruments with interviews and case studies and focus groups to flesh out specific examples of how kids applied it, now we start to get a really complete picture. You know, if you go back from the PSRQ through the tear, through the torque, and you brown that out with interviews and focus groups, hopefully we can paint a better picture all the time of what has to occur in a program to help kids learn and practice and develop these skills, and then what's going on cognitively for them to help to see how to connect it to other parts of their life, and, and how do they report applying it in individualized ways.
Thank you. Very good, Paul. Thank you for covering that. Um, oh, okay. Eddie. Yeah, I have a, a, a question. Uh, when I read a paper, I noticed uh, uh, in the paper, uh, it introduced a TPSR-based lesson, uh, how to say, lesson framework. Yeah. Including the uh, relational time awareness talk and physical activity lesson and group meeting and then ended at reflection time. So, mm -hmm. yeah. so I, my question is, will this procedure or framework applicable for, you know, to other model-based practice? Let's say, for example, corporate learning, can this, can mm -hmm. this framework be, uh, be applicable to other model-based practice or it's uh, exclusive to TDSR? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, <coughs> so that that lesson format is uh, something that Don Hellison developed through his his years. Much of his work was with very small groups. Um, by by the last twenty or so years of his field work, uh, he was actually doing more most of his work in after school programs or alternative settings as opposed to a large PE class. Um, so very often a lot of his his own field work was based with having 10, 12, maybe 15 kids would be a large group. And they were kids that were there by choice. It was voluntary too. So I think those are a few things to understand. Um, that lesson format that he developed was really developed largely in um, voluntary programs with smaller numbers that were after school settings. So th that is one of the tricky things I think for a lot of PE teachers to picture, well, how am I gonna do this? I, I've got 40 kids in the gym or 50 kids. I can't have everybody sit in a circle <laughs> um, and talk about this. So I think those are tactics. Again, I'm, I'm really big on this idea of separating out between strategies and tactics. Um, if you have 12 kids that are there by choice and you've been working with them for three or four years straight, sure, sit them down like you guys are sitting around a table now and we can have a conversation. Um, but that will depend on your situation and what you have to work with. Um, what I've done in, in cases where I've been working with large groups, you know, 30 or more kids in a, in a gym, um, where there are kids, you know, one class coming after another, after another. Um, the point is I want to infuse some form of debriefing and some form of reflection. So what I could do in that case is have kids do a journal entry, you know, where, where they just give me a brief comment or they can do a log on self-rating their behavior in class. I can take those things up. I can read them. I can make notes and give those back. The point is to promote reflection self-reflection on the kids and for you to be able to give feedback to them. Uh, and if you, if you don't have a situation where you can do that every time in a, in an intimate group meeting, um, you just have to think creatively, well, what are some other ways I could get at that? So this is one thing where my interpretation of how to use TPSR is I sort of, I try to think which things are just details and tactics because those you need to be able to adjust. Um, but what I don't want to adjust or stray from are what are the core strategies or the core commitments that we have? You know, if sharing power with kids, giving kids leadership roles, promoting self-reflection, that's what's really important. 
how I achieve that can vary. So I've taught some classes where somebody might look at it and say, oh, you weren't doing TPSR because you didn't do a group meeting, <laughs> you know, or you, you missed this part or that part. I, I don't personally get that rigid about it. Um, one thing I would say, just to wrap this up, the idea of whether it's someone using cooperative learning or adventure-based learning or just gen teaching generally and they're not using a model, like we would do with any other skill, if there's a specific social and emotional skill that you want to target, set it as an objective and make sure kids understand that, introduce it at the beginning of the lesson, give them some structured ways to practice it and give feedback on it throughout, and then just check in on it at the end. You know, do a check for understanding or have a couple kids share their example of how it went for them, what they think they could do better. Treat it the same way you would your psychomotor objective for the day or the cognitive objective for the day. But if you're not at least introducing it at the front end and revisiting it somehow at the end, I wonder how much it's really sinking through and getting into their minds. Thank you. Good question, Eddie. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate yeah. it. Sure. I don't know if this is really a question, but Judy. I am uh, thinking about our shape standards. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what do you just, think about them? What do I think about it? Right? <laughs> this will become a podcast. Yeah, you, you, you better not say too much. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Keep it seemly. Like no, but I was just thinking, um, you know, this semester I'm teaching elementary methods and I have got to admit that I don't ever teach this class the same way twice mm -hmm. just because of all the different changes that go on and just how do I become a better teacher in the process and evaluating what my student teachers are doing currently and then to see, okay, what did I miss anyway? So I'm thinking I've been unwrapping this whole, well, in fact, this semester I'm kind of slowing down the whole standards-based practice piece, but I think when I approach um, going over the standards, I'm going to go backwards. Mm -hmm. Think about how SHAPE presents their standards. Standard number one demonstrates competency. I mean, we're going right, we're attacking content right from the get-go. And what an interesting paradigm shift mm. that perhaps we could have in our field if we took the flip and the inverse and let's talk about standards four and five first and talk about the big picture of what we're trying to accomplish. We always talk about the big picture of, um, you know, I'm, I'm a product of George Graham from Virginia Tech. And so our... our our wonderful tagline, guiding youngsters to be physically active and healthy for a lifetime. So, you know, we talk about that, but then we get deep into the, the content piece where I really think we forget this motivation and the motivation to become physically active and healthy for a lifetime. So, um, like I said, there's really no question in this, but it's just making me think, what, what if we started getting away from what general education has been doing for, you know, Jennifer, we talk about this all the time, we're in the same program. Uh, being my critical friend and we always talk about you know those whole concept of whole child education and, and why we are so connected we both have been out of you know we've both been teaching uh, in the public schools for 20 years you know we kind of entered about the same time had a lot of the same shared experiences but obviously different content but we go back to what we've always connected with was this whole concept of you know teaching for the whole child We've definitely mm -hmm. gotten away with that with standardized testing. We've gotten away from that because it's about the content, content, content. I don't feel as a teacher, oh my gosh, I know I've got these tests coming up. I can't give this time to do a restorative circle, right? I mean, these things that we know that are so important. So I guess where I can maybe pose this into a question. 
thank you for listening to me ramble as I think out loud, but no, so it's the, good, school, good the school in Spain. So, you know, uh, I've been doing a little bit of research and trying to think about tying in positive education from the positive psychology slant into mm-hmm. dissertation work. And for Dr. Dyson's pro- uh, uh, project, which is due tonight, I've been reading, <laughs> <laughs> I've been reading about how positive education that's been spawned from, you know, positive psychology, but they really look at these qualities of qualities and how we can attach skills to the individual and then how the individuals can form groups and then how they can create a better society. So I'm just thinking in Spain, when you were able to take this idea of TPSR across content areas, do they look at curriculum and their goals a little differently? Are they a little more open-minded to taking the approach of, yeah, let's kind of do the, and flip it. Let's flip the, the script. Let's not look at content and, te- and testing, but let's look at the whole child again. I yeah. guess I'm really hoping there's some place like that. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. So maybe one well, day I'll, I can go find, you know. And, yeah. And well, uh, one thing I'll, I'll tell you, actually, I thought of another example. There's nothing written about this, but um, uh, somebody else who went through Don Hellison's program uh, who teaches at a small alternative school here in Illinois, um, he he had the best answer uh, for this question ever. Like I asked if they, uh, I know him and the kids he works with. He's the school director, the principal, essentially. Um, it's called an Illinois safe school. And what that really means is these are kids they pulled out of other schools to make those schools safer. <laughs> and they've dumped them yeah. on frame, uh, my, my buddy. So anyway, I, you know, with this social emotional learning is such a huge buzz. And I asked him, I said, you know, do you guys integrate that? How do you integrate that? And he said, we, we don't integrate that. He said, that is our curriculum. He said, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and social emotional learning. That's our curriculum. Um, we cover math to the extent we can. <laughs> we do what we're able to with science and language. But these kids, Maduja Abuangadas, are firing. I mean, the situations they're coming from um, are, have a lot to do with why they haven't been able to thrive in larger school settings, right? Um, so it's sort of an extreme example, but I thought it was a perfect a response given who he's working with. Their focus is on making sure these kids feel safe and helping these kids learn how to manage themselves and work with other people. And if, if they don't attend to that, don't even worry about what other content we're covering, right? Um, so so there, there are examples out there like that. Um, it, it, it doesn't necessarily fit the way large schools and school systems are structured, and it's antithetical to it, unfortunately, in a lot of ways. Um, but I, I think what I, what I have seen in larger schools is when, when teachers, whatever subject area, start getting more uh, more strategies and more intentional with this, what they often find is it's, it's really validating and it, it sort of changes their view of kids and their view of teaching in a positive way. Um, and they realize, oh, this isn't getting in the way of me covering content. You know, go back to Pythagoras. If you've got, you know, behavior problems, most of them are probably coming from the group of kids who are just freaked out because they don't get this at all. And they're, they're slipping through the cracks or they're disengaged for those reasons. Or the kids who are bored out of their minds because they don't need to be covering this again. Right? So it, I, I don't see these things as, as a means to an end or something that you just do reactively. It's an integrated part of creating a positive learning environment. 
people are taking responsibility for their own learning and for the material. And the more sort of choice and autonomy that you give them within that, um, they tend to get more engaged. So again, it's not something you do instead of physical activity. It's not something you do instead of math content. It's part of your job as a teacher if you really want kids to be engaged and motivated and taking responsibility for their own learning. Yeah, Paul, great answer. Uh, just so you know, for some weird reason, it must be uh, coronavirus is in our computer. In 12 minutes, 15 seconds, we may have an automatic restart. And if that happens, uh, we might be offline for a couple of minutes, and then we'll get you back on, okay? Just giving you a feel of what it Okay, so just a warning if we blank out, yeah, and then you'll, you'll, you can just shoot me uh, a message, Ben. If that's the case, just send me an email when it's time for me to dial back in, and I will. I will, and yeah, it's sort of, uh, maybe it's Y2K. <laughs> yeah, I thought we'd been through this already. <laughs> it's 2020. There's still two zeros in there somewhere. Instead of, yeah. Wrong zeros, but there they are, there are, there are. Say lovely. Anyway, cheers, mate. Uh, we can edit it out for the podcast. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I, I do have another question if I can kind of kind of go piggyback on sure. what we were talking about early uh, an earlier conversation that we were having. So when we're talking about this idea of transfer and really finding these real world experiences for us to take these lessons from our TPSR based lessons in physical education and, and taking it in the real world, the first thing that came to mind is service learning. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I wonder, because I know like with TPSR, we do have the, the background understanding this was with high-risk high children and, and, and situations like that. But do you, are you aware of any research that people are trying to connect the idea of service learning so we can go through these ideas of how to teach students, I guess it's like the train-the-trainer concept of old, old PD, I guess, is, is how you can look at it. But it's like, how do we train these kids to go out and be advocates and go and be ambassadors for the TPSR model in real life? Right, right. Um, I, I think one of the things, uh, there's one article with uh, Barry Gordon, it's Gordon, Jacobs, and Wright, that might be one that you yeah, guys that saw. One of the articles we read, Paul. Yeah, yeah yes. I, I think in that, I think one of the, you know, it wasn't the focus of the article, but I think one of the things where we described that program, one of the things we intentionally tried to do, because I don't think we do enough of this, is to get kids actually actively engaging with things outside of our program. You know, you can have them come into your program and uh, do all these wonderful things, but yes, yeah, if, if all you're doing is telling them, they need to go out and transfer it, but you're not sort of helping them with those baby steps and getting those experiences, um, you know, I, you're really putting a lot on those kids. <laughs> so we tried to uh, do a couple activities there where, where they selected, you know, sort of a charity they wanted to work with, or a night that they wanted to sponsor for awareness at the school and they helped to plan it and help to staff it. Um, so I, I, I think those are great ideas to, to, to reinforce and give kids concrete experience of what does it mean to do something for your community, whether it's your school classroom or your whole school, which is really what community is for most of these kids. There's a group, again, we haven't written enough about this. There's one article in Joburg, but there's a group I work with in Chicago um, called Beyond the Ball. It's an after-school sport program. And they are in the neighborhood that if you had to put it into the one zip code that is the, the cause of the murder rates in Chicago being so high, the majority of that is coming from the zip code where they live. Um, and they are huge, huge community advocates. Uh, and they use their program to talk to kids about being 
leaders and advocates in their community. Um, and, and so they do that in a very intentional way. Uh, yeah, so I think the, the more we do with that, the better. Uh, because again, we can talk a good game, but if all we do is have conversations with them inside the gym, um, you know, I, I think it's a lot to expect that they're going to just figure out how to be a change agent and how to organize something on their own outside of that setting. Um, but we can give them opportunities to do that. Um, a lot of the work I'm doing internationally right now with like Belize and Sri Lanka, we've done projects with them where we've tried to introduce them to TPSR as a pedagogy to promote youth development and individual change you know, on the ground, you know, in their programs, but then to also try to encourage them to think of social change, you know, how, how could they use sport programming to, whether it's reclaiming public spaces or building bridges in a post-conflict environment like Sri Lanka between different ethnic groups, how can they intentionally use sport programming as a way to address social issues? Um, we run a, a boxing program right now for girls at a local middle school that's focused on body image and awareness and empowerment. So I, I think that that's a new area that we're starting to do a lot more with that really has a ton of potential for us to start sort of take off the blinders about just what do we do in the gym with these 15 kids, but how do we really uh, try to build their capacity to make change outside the program. Right, and that's the real hard part, isn't it? That's, that's like any educational enterprise. We want it to transfer to the other classes, to the playground, and then to life, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Other questions, yeah. folks? Yeah. Sure. Eddie, you want to go? Yeah, Eddie. Yes. Uh, so I have a question. Uh, since TPSR is, uh, how to say, is a model to promote students' social emotional learning, so uh, uh, I want uh, I want to know because social emotional learning is very abstract and broad, uh, you know, uh, how to say it's a broad, uh, very abstract concept. Yeah. So uh, there are many agencies or researchers that try to define to give a definition of social emotional learning, and different scholars or different agencies they define social emotional learning in different ways. So uh, each Different social frameworks, social emotional learning framework also have different constructs that they want to focus on. So uh, yeah. uh, there are, uh, I, I read some article, there are, I, I know the, the Castles one, the Castles definition of social emotional learning. And also yes. I know there is a scholar uh, researcher named Jones. He also defined the social emotional learning in a different way. Mm -hmm. So for my understanding, the uh, I, I'm not sure if it's right. From my understanding, the Castles one, the Castles one is uh, they define the social emotional learning in a very narrow sense. So mm -hmm. because uh, that that definition kind of like uh, uh, doesn't address the significant contribution of social emotional learning to the person that live in context. They indeed have different skills, but they they don't address the uh, contribution. Uh, of the social emotional learning to the people uh, living in context, like mm -hmm. a family community. Uh, and also the Jones definition, uh, in his definition, he indeed addressed social emotional learning very important for students to succeed in school and in workplace and in, to become a very good citizenship. 
So, but it's, um, this definition also lose a little bit detailed information of what social emotional learning competencies are. So it's a little bit kind of too broad. Yeah. Or Tesla's one is too focused. So do you understand? I, I don't know if I express my understanding. So uh, for Kessel, oh, yeah. it, it fails to give us a full picture of what is social emotional learning. But for the uh, Jones one, it looks like too broad. Mm -hmm. uh, we cannot catch the detailed information. So my question is, uh, uh, what do you think uh, uh, is better definition for social emotional learning or what definition do you stand for? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I think it's a really good point you bring up. And it's, um, I don't tend to think of it in terms of that there's one correct framework or one, you know, there's a right answer because then that means I'm saying 50 other ones are wrong all of a sudden. Um, I think the one of the biggest challenges is to have, uh, to, to, to define it and and have clear concepts and strategies and skills we can focus on the different groups have done that and they've come up with different answers but i think it, for one thing it's a step forward um just the fact that they have been able to articulate exactly what do we mean by this so one group may come up with a different interpretation than another but i think that that they have um they have quite a bit in common and as long as they're articulating exactly what it is they're suggesting we promote they're given a good rationale for it and they can provide clear strategies and skills and competencies to focus on i i think that that is what's most helpful to teachers you know i know that if if you look at castle for one thing they have their own framework but they also it seems to me are becoming almost like a clearinghouse for many other different SEL approaches. The, you know, there are a lot of approaches that might not use that same model exactly, but um, you know, th this one has a greater focus on, social, on, on the emotional aspect. This one is more applicable for school-wide applications. This one has been developed for kindergarten through second graders. Um, so I, don't, I think it's a good thing that we're getting more sophisticated all the time about being more intentional and coming up with clear definitions.